Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Take it, John. Welcome to Boxes and Lines and welcome back to Ronan. He's been he spent two weeks over in the old sword. Welcome to 2024. This is our first podcast recording of 2024. It's a, a brave new right? world and new year. And as Very we embark exciting. into this new brave new world, uh, we figure it's a perfect time to explore what the future holds in the world of ETF ETFs, and, and we have finance. a financial futurist to help guide us to, to look into the crystal ball. Yeah, our special guest today is Dave Nodig. I'll give you some intro to Dave, and then he's going to tell us what the hell a financial futurist is. But mm-hmm. he is, in fact, one of those at ETF Trends and ETF Database. And prior to that, he was managing director of ETF.com, which is obviously something we all know. He's been a go-to expert for insightful commentary on all things ETFs. And we will explain what an ETF is. Before his tenure at ETF.com, Dave managed mutual funds at StartupMetamarkets.com and was a managing director at Barclays Global Investment in the 90s. And Ooh. he also will uh, hold seances for people to communicate with uh, <laughs> ETF <laughs> issuers. With, <laughs> with ETF issuers of the past for a small fee, but I just made that one up. He's left the room. That was terrible. <laughs> that was it. And he's also the co-author of a comprehensive guide to exchange-traded funds for the CFA Institute, a definitive book on ETFs. It reminds me of Austin Powers. That really is my bag, baby. And it's, a, ter- it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's a terrific read, too. I, I read it last night. Um, (laughs) I don't believe a word of that. (laughs) There you go. So uh, really quick, look, we we appreciate you joining us, honestly, Dave, and we we will be more mature in seconds. uh, (laughs) All evidence to the contrary. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, he said he's listened to us before, so he knows what he's in for. But uh, let's play off your title a little bit on financial futurist and just maybe tell us what, what exactly is a financial futurist, 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 and, 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 or and, flutist. A, and a little bit uh, about Vetify, which is where you work now. Correct? Sure, sure. So uh, let me start with Vetify. So Vetify, which has now been acquired by the TMX Group, who owns the Toronto Stock Exchange, among oh, other I things. Oh, I read that. That was yeah. just recently, right? Like over the holidays? January 2nd. Okay. Wonderful yeah, group of people there. We yep. have very warm relations with the folks at TMX. Yes. Well, luckily, so do I. So that's mm-hmm. convenient. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so Vetify, you can think of us as sort of living in the intellectual property property space between folks who want to issue investment products and financial advisors, who are the ones who generally are buying the bulk of these financial products. Um, So we work with issuers to do everything from help them develop cool new ideas and turn those into indexes, and then those get turned into products. We don't make ETFs, but we help generate some of that intellectual property. Uh, We produce an enormous amount of content across a whole suite of websites, ETF trends, ETF database, advisor perspectives. I'm probably forgetting a bunch. Uh, And we do an enormous amount of advisor education. We do over 200 webinars a year, uh, talking about every aspect of the financial advice business with a pretty heavy lean on ETFs. And we run the Exchange ETF Conference down in Florida every year in February, which gets together a couple thousand financial advisors uh, to talk about everything from how to run their practice to whether or not they should buy XYZ ticker, which seems insane this week. So that's what Vetify does. My job as a financial futurist, which you're allowed to laugh when you say it out loud, because I laugh when I say it out loud. <laughs> Sorry, um, I just did it again, and I didn't even mean to. <laughs> You've been 
holding it in. I appreciate it. So if I, that's a funny title that we came up with that basically means I spend most of my time talking to financial advisors and issuers about what they're looking at beyond this year. So I tend to say that you know a market strategist tends to be focused in one to three years. Uh, certainly a portfolio manager tends to be focused probably even shorter term than that, even though they'll tell you something different in the prospectus, uh, generally focused on that short time frame. What I'm generally focused on is more like three to 10 years out. So I'm one of those people who's still interested in things like decentralized finance. Remember, we used to talk about that a couple of years ago. Yep. I'm still focused mm-hmm. on things like that. Uh, the Bitcoin ETF has obviously been a big topic of conversation lately. I'm deep in those weeds as well. So regulation, market, market structure, uh, and then frankly, the culture of investing and how that drags people forward. So that's, that's sort of my shtick. Uh, mostly I do a lot of publishing and I do a lot of videos and I do a lot of talking to people. Cool. Well, my first, what I thought was an ingenious question is not seven to 10 years out. It's actually oh, well, 2024. Well, I know actually yeah. that is very interesting, but our focus yeah. is much more limited because we're much less visionary than you are, but we would, are, are we're, interested we're financial in present. Well, this present is worth spending some time on because 2024 is a wild ride. Yeah, God knows. God knows it is. It should be a doozy. Obviously, you know, when you think 2024, you think the election, right? It's on top of everyone's minds. And And I think I think we I can speak for everybody by saying regardless of what your political leanings are, we're probably all dreading the prospect of the election uh, coming up at the end of the year. But uh, but it may may obviously a lot of uh, volatility potentially associated with that. So how do you think about the election and, and uh, hedging against it or playing or playing the election, or is there even a point in trying to do that? I get this question a surprising amount, uh, and I get it religiously every four years, unsurprisingly. Um, <laughs> everybody always wants to, quote unquote, play the election. I think every trader has a, a theory that they have about who's going to win based on these tea leaves being read. The conclusion that I've come to over the last dozen election cycles I've had the privilege of looking at um, is that it's really a mugs game, to use an old man term. Uh, it's, it's a fool's errand to try now to- Now that's an interesting term, a mugs game. I've never heard that before. Is that I like think a it, Canadian I think it means thing? Or? Are you fucking serious? <laughs> yeah. No, I've never heard that. Mugs game, like horse race betting. Okay, like that. all right. I just hadn't yeah. heard it. It's, it's, right. it's a pointless exercise, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's only for fools. Um, I think <laughs> if you think- It's funny that, that Dave said that's like an old man's term in- Dave. <laughs> don't don't do it. Don't go there. Don't go so, there. That's not what yeah, I, you know. Oh, you like how, how did you read into me like that? That's not what I meant. You know. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Dave. Anyway, sorry, Dave. Yeah, I, uh, I apologize for John. So it's a mugs anyway, game. It's, it's a mugs game. What I tell advisors is, uh, don't don't try to trade the election. Right? You should have mm-hmm. a portfolio that you feel comfortable holding, no matter what happens over the next eighteen months. Right? And, and let's be honest: if everybody really think this election is going to be over in you know eleven months, I don't. I think this is going to drag out forever. At least the implications of it yeah. and the ramifications of it, whichever ways it goes. Um, but there are plenty of folks out there trying to sell you on things. Things based on what your belief system are is about the election. Um, we have products like Dems, which is literally the Democratic large cap core fund, which is designed to position based on regulatory differences between the two parties. Uh-huh. And while I understand that, this is one of those cases that I think all of this is priced in every second of every day. 
Sounds a bit gimmicky, but you are so, not. You are not one of those like uh, gimmicky get rich. So Dem- Dems is that is that is that really a real life ETF? Yeah, D E M Z. It's a real life ETF. Okay, um, there's, there's. I mean, you know, Ramasawi has a whole ETF company called Strive, which is basically trying to build sort of GOP oriented uh, ETFs. You know, more oil drilling things like that. Uh, and is the thought that you? Pick one, and the winning party, your ETF will will go as up. a result. Increase really? Jeez. I, I, that's the thought. I I'm, learning something wow. every day, my I'm man. A stellar, I'm, I'm a stellar on this. I'm with you on this, Dave. I think it all sounds whack to me. And, and, and well, and historically, this doesn't work. We've been like yeah. the last election cycle. We had a whole raft of probably we had a GOP ETF. I think it was actually called GOP. Um, didn't work. Like, doesn't matter really how you position things, I believe that this kind of information gets priced into security prices so quickly. Uh, I mean, we yeah. see this as we, we've all done this before. We'll get into September this year and you'll see the market reacting based on like weird poll numbers or, you know, somebody will have a Dean scream and all of a sudden they won't be in the mix anymore and, and everybody will move the market. But the idea that you can position your whole portfolio for the long term to lean one way or another seems very silly and also really a violation of what most advisors should be doing, which is really having a prudent plan for the long term. Well, Crazy. that makes sense to me. Is there a mega one? It's it's a, well, I'm sure yeah. if there's not, then somebody will yeah, create it because they, if there's they, money they to be made from it. I don't really? think that if ticker's you can make still money up. off of people's ignorance. Wait, I got tra- to trademark that. Sorry. Nobody used that out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, no, no, no. Luck. We have the uh, Point Bridge America First ETF, M-A-G-A. Really? Uh, well, oh, there boy. you go. Yeah, it's uh, all, it's so, all out sorry, there. Sorry, Ronan. Bastards. Yeah, you missed your you missed your window. <laughs> well, speaking of which, so one of the trends that has become political for weird reasons that I don't really understand is ESG and clean energy and all of that, uh, right? I, in fact, I just read an article uh, the other day that it's that CEOs are being counseled to sort of stay away from using the term ESG. So basically, do what you're going to do anyway, but just don't use the term so you don't attract unwanted attention. How do you see those investment trends around those factors? What's the state of that and what's the trend of that in 2024 and going forward? Well, we, we had, we had a, a pretty bad year or two in terms of things like flows. Um, so we went through over so the very early beginning of the, the, the century that we're in, uh, a big push in the ETF community selling lots of different varieties of ESG. And I think that that was a bit of a hype train. And I think we all saw that that was a hype train then when that was going on. Um, and I think there are very legitimate criticisms of how the package product market jumped onto ESG. In particular, a lot of the stuff got really watered down, right? You look at these portfolios that look almost exactly like the S&P 500, but they have some tiny little screen in them uh, and you can charge another 10 basis points that you couldn't charge when you didn't have that tiny little screen in it. That, I think, has largely moved off to the side a little bit. And we've Mm -hmm. seen negative flows in a lot of those types of products, particularly here in the U.S. The counter to that is it hasn't actually stopped these things from working. The average sort of boring ESG fund, like S&P 500 with an ESG Mm -hmm. tilt, they all outperformed the S&P last year. Nobody's talking about it, but ESG worked. Mm -hmm. And so... I think what we're going to see is the sort of slow growth will continue largely outside the United States. I think it's very easy to be U.S. centric about this and think, well, you know, our trillions of dollars aren't going to get allocated to this because we're American. It's, it doesn't matter, right? The Nordic sovereigns, even like the Middle East sovereign funds, they're throwing money and in, particularly into 
climate-oriented solutions mm. um, mm-hmm. because they see the writing on the wall. I mean, it is only going one way. Is the ESG way that Wall Street created the best way to tackle this problem? Eh, probably not. But there are valid ways of doing this. So the idea that we're going to have boardrooms stop using the phrase ESG and probably DEI as well, given what we've been seeing lately, um, doesn't mean that they aren't still valid economic factors and we won't see people continue to invest on them. I suspect we'll see much tighter focus on the G, governance, because that's one that's made and saved people a ton of money. Just getting out of the way of stuff that blows up is a good idea. And a lot on the E, a lot on the environmental stuff. Um, right. The social stuff, I think, is going to be sort of relegated more to values-oriented investing, Hard, which again harder, harder to benchmark, harder to uh, like objectify yeah. and sort of figure and out whether you've met it or not. Yeah, very, very right. personal. But the environment yeah. makes a ton of sense, right? I, ha- I have to imagine. Well, well, and you and I, and and tell me if you disagree. I've seen that part of the premise here is that on a longer-term basis, the you know obje- objectively investment performance has to be based on rational factors, not political ones, not right. short-term political ones. Um, and longer term, we, uh, as as a society and globally, um, you know, economies have to be oriented toward longer term, more sustainable energy and other sources. Yep. And I, I think we're going to continue to see focus on, you know, it's a decarbonization, carbon credits, uh, nuclear, I think is going to go through a real renaissance here in the next couple of years. Um, one that I think is actually investable. I think I've been talking about NLR, which is a, a fund from Van Eck that is both the nuclear energy industry. So the actual people producing power and taking advantage of some of the subsidies we've now got in the U.S., uh, but also some of the uranium miners and the folks building the technologies um, most of that stuff's pretty beaten down. Like nuclear has been a, a you know a, a no no <laughs> for a lot of investors for a long yeah. time. Uh, but we've seen in Europe it's taking off. We've had France talking today as we're recording this about increasing the number of reactors they need to build in the next five years. So I think there are pockets here in the decarbonization trade that are really investable. And if people can ever figure out how to actually harness the fusion um, sort of aspect of uh, nuclear energy, then that's obviously a total, a, a complete game changer. Yeah, absolutely. You see, that's a hot running? take. Yeah. Well, well done, John. Hot take. Yeah, John you Ramsey. can invent the fucking time machine. Mm-hmm. It'd be cool, yeah. too. Um, <laughs> sorry. So as we record this, <laughs> sorry, um, a previous podcast guest of ours, uh, Anthony Scaramucci, is currently staring at the clock. Otherwise waiting, known as the mooch. The, wait, the, the mooch. mooch. Waiting on a decision, which... It's supposed to come by tomorrow, right, from the SEC, but it's uh, regarding uh, many spot, other folks. Yes. Yeah, spot bit, Bitcoin ETF. You may have heard and, of that, a spot <laughs> Bitcoin ETF, yeah, yeah, perhaps. Yes. Um, there is very hot to trot in it, and the market seems to be trading like mm-hmm. it will be approved. Possibly Ethereum. I don't know um, when that might be, but uh, what impacts do you foresee on the, the crypto market? How should investors be approaching these digital assets when there's, there's really no like clear direction from, I'm trying not to knock our regulators, but clear direction from our regulators. Oh, I'll knock our regulators, Ronan, for yeah, God's yeah. sake. How many yeah. times do I have to tell you? Dave, have you, if you've yeah. listened to this podcast, more than two of them, you've probably heard the declaration from Ramsey as to how long he's worked at the SEC and the 
Finra. Let's move it along. Move it along. <laughs> CFTC. Yeah, just move it along. Yes. I, so was, here, I, I was giving them an in. Sorry, Dave. You here's go. my hot take on the, the Bitcoin yeah. ETF thing. So, yes, they're going to be approved. Uh, I think it's hilarious as a long-term market structure and regulatory wonk that all of a sudden all these people who know nothing about regulation think the SEC has to follow a particular calendar. Um, you guys know how ridiculous yeah. that is. Uh, there's, there's this belief system that somehow if it doesn't get approved tomorrow on the 10th that Gary Gensler is going to get hauled the way to jail or something like that, <laughs> not realizing he could simply say, eh, we'll get to you next week and nobody could do anything about it, which is what exactly. the SEC usually does. Yeah. Uh, but regardless, I think they've been backed into a corner enough now because of the lawsuit, which they lost against Grace, uh, that Grayscale won against them, that they are going to approve it. I suspect that tomorrow a bunch of those final approvals will in fact come out. Uh, and then we'll see the normal process of everybody scrambling to get their product actually trading on an exchange, which is never at 930 on the open, even though everybody always thinks it's going to be like, they'll all be trading at 9.30 yeah. on Wednesday. I suspect they'll all start trading sometime between 9.30 tomorrow and the end of the month because everybody's going to have to get all their ducks in a row. So they'll be trading. I think it's a big deal for the crypto ecosystem because all of a sudden, a whole lot of financial advisors who use model portfolios can quickly allocate 1% or 2% if they want to into Bitcoin. A whole lot of institutions that are trapped in other mechanisms like GBTC have a better vehicle to move into. Um, so I think it will be a big deal. And I think we'll see you know somewhere under $10 billion in net new assets flow in by the end of the year, which sounds like a big number until you think that like JP Morgan's equity premium income fund pulled in yeah. 22 billion last year, right? But so I don't it's think it's not, a big but deal. sort of like all these expectations are priced in, so it's not going to be like earth shattering or game changing. Well, in terms the, of I, I'm not going to sit here and try to give you a price target on Bitcoin. I know yeah. that we've got a mark out there from, I think, Standard Charter for 200,000 by the end of the year. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. Can anybody really make predictions like that? I yeah. think the number go up. Well, I would think you could. You're the financial futurist, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, you if think you can't, then who can? He's got a uh, magic eight ball yeah. right there. Come on, tell <laughs> well, us. I, I think the number is up from here, the combination of the having going action, which is a real thing, uh, right. and the increased access from a new audience suggests that, yes, the number should probably be up from here. I don't yeah. think it's $100 billion in net new flows and five times the price. Yeah. But help me understand some around this, I, I feel kind of ignorant about this. The when people talk about Bitcoin ETFs and there's all these people that are like, you know, chomping at the bit to, um, you know, put in their own product. How much differentiation can there be? Bitcoin ETF basically means you just take a bunch of Bitcoin and put it into a fund and then you, you know, have a way of trading it. Like it's you know, one is there asset. something really <laughs> that much uh, more uh, nuanced than that? I mean, three things, price, yeah. liquidity, uh -huh. Marketing. Uh -huh. Those are the only things that are differentiating any of these products. Uh -huh. On price, we know Bitwise is going to be the cheapest. They're out of 20 basis points. That makes uh -huh. them the likely target for things like institutions and uh, models from financial advisors. Uh, we know that BlackRock is launching something. And because they're launching something, we know that we have a 200-person capital markets desk, which is going to go put nuclear weapons aimed at market makers to make sure that it trades really well. Yeah. Uh, and so I would sort of put the horse race between those two and GBTC, which already has $28 billion, but is a pink sheet trust right now. Um, so those three will jockey for position, and then the game will become uh, who gets the options trading. And if the options all lean on uh, one ticker uh -huh. very quickly, that's the ecosystem. But you're not going to have dozens of these products. No, no, no. I, I, I would suspect a third of these products will close by the end of the year, and another yeah. third will dribble along well underneath profitability for a year or two after that. Yep. 
Very good question, John. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Ronan. <laughs> but hey, it's Bitcoin. It's the future of finance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To the moon. Whatever. To the moon. Yeah. Um, to the moon, Alice. And another, I don't know if I can, <laughs> another one if I can, I don't know if I can call it a buzzword, but like active ETFs is pretty hot topic. Maybe yeah. maybe last year, maybe I'm late to this, but um, there's talk of it slowing down, maybe underperforming. And we thought maybe you'd be a good person to elaborate on the challenge of active ETFs versus index funds like the old Qs, boring things like that. Like what? Uh-huh. Yeah, we're, we, we definitely had a renaissance in active management over the last 18 months. Um, yeah. Fully like 80% of the products that launched last year were actively managed. Uh, something like 20 to 25% of the flows went into actively managed products. And so that's- and They were from big, like, legit firms, right? Like the, 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 the T-Rows of the world and things like JP that. JP Morgan. Right? I mean, JP it's Morgan, like, yeah. these, are, yeah. these are real large firms. Yeah. Um, obviously, firms like Kathy Wood's Arc are in yeah. that mix as well. Um, and I point out that, like, despite the fact they didn't get a lot of flows, if you actually start looking at league tables, like, Kathy Wood's financials fund outperformed financials by 35% last year, and nobody's mm. talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their web-based fund outperformed everybody else's tech fund that wasn't just pure Bitcoin or digital mining, but nobody cared. So that, I think... Why, why is that, you think? Is it just people want to pile on... On her funds that haven't done well, or like, well, like <laughs> there's some of that. That's I mean, all I read in my Bloomberg. It's like, yeah, there is definitely a uh, sort of a cultural component to this. People love yeah. jumping on people when they're down, and Kathy, yeah. they've been so aggressive with their. She was so you know, up, and then people want to like rain on her. It seems exactly. Like. Yeah. So, okay. um, I, you know, I, I always try to tell people like they did exactly what they said they were going to do, and if you were surprised by any of it, you weren't paying any attention. Um, yeah. I actually think that they make some good calls here and there. I think they are a shoot from the hip active manager in the old nineteen. 1990s trading style. Uh, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So it's a regime dependent kind of bet. Uh, I think that those bets are getting harder, not easier over time. The more money puts gets plowed into things like ETFs, which are easy to trade, easy to express your opinion with, the harder and harder it gets to be the person who's pulling out the specific gems out of the overall market that nobody else has found out about particularly with the index effect driving momentum into the Magnificent Seven. I mean, remember, we're still in an accumulation phase in indexing. Target date funds are still net buyers of the whole market. That just gets the winners richer over and over and over again until we start decumulating in the next five to 10 years from the baby boomers, in which case we should be a little bit more cautious. But you're always going to have people, presumably, who are uh, smart at being able to understand the the um, fallibility is a sort of herd mentality and mm-hmm. figure out where uh, where the herd's getting it wrong and figure out how to differentiate themselves and otherwise we're Otherwise, we're just all turning into automatons. Right? Oh, I think right. I think people can still beat the market. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sitting here saying that's impossible. Yeah. Uh, but I think that people start to understand the math of how difficult it is and how unlikely it is that you're the guy who managed to find it in an ETF wrapper, as opposed yeah. to being locked inside yeah. some hedge fund uh, that you probably can't get access to, well, or a sure. mutual fund that can close that's closed for new money. Right, that's the other thing. ETFs can't close. So if you've got really fantastic ideas in the microcap space, you can't launch an ETF on it. That makes sense. Yeah. I thought we'd touch upon yet another buzzword, if you wouldn't mind. And it's, uh, you know, 23 was the pivotal year for AI. Obviously. AI. Every, yeah, let's talk about AI. Everybody, we, you know, we've, we've heard of AI, but that's his AI seance. Don't yeah. worry. Um but like 23, it really came to light, right? Where, you know, 
my little mother in Ireland probably talks about AI. But um, as we move into 24, is maybe that that's the oh, implementation year where people actually really use it for what? Um, I don't necessarily know. Do you what, what? What do you predict for AI in the financial sector, and how should investors and advisors prepare for? In, 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 including yeah. in the area you're most familiar, you know, creation of e, uh, yeah, ETFs oh, yeah, yeah, and cool. uh, you know, uh, tools for asset managers. Look stuff. at that bridge he just came up with. Love yeah. it, John. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so here's the thing. I'm uh, I'm not a big buyer on the idea that AI is going to pick stocks real well. And there's a whole. That's a whole. That's a giant bucket of AI research. Um, It doesn't mean that they're not going to be helpful, but I don't think that somehow we're all going to magically jump into the AI S&P 500 and it's going to beat the regular S&P 500. Thank God. I'm I'm glad to hear that. I I just don't think that's how it works. Do I think that... Uh, you know, there are a bunch of firms on the South Shore of Connecticut that are going to use AI to good effect in the data analysis work they do, particularly around things like consuming large volumes of language, like, say, regulatory filings or news flow. Those things are legit. And I think that there be there'll be interesting sources of signal for folks that are already very good active managers uh, yeah. and already very good stock pickers. But the real impacts of AI that I think we're going to see this year are going to be much more subtle. It's not going to be OpenAI and Microsoft and Google. It's going to be things like Disney. Right, Disney is going to be able to start saying, oh, you know what? We have a couple of little kids properties that are largely AI developed that generate a bunch of traffic. We have uh, AI doing better jobs of doing recommendation engines. Oh, by the way, in our corporate office, we've managed to get rid of all of our paralegal staff because that's all being done by somebody else now. So there are these jobs that I think will start to have direct AI impacts, but it's not going to be like overnight there's a paperclip factory and we take over the world. Uh, I, I think it's going to be much more subtle than that. And frankly, I'm hoping that the hype has died down enough that we can start doing some of that actual development work. I think it's a distraction when we have these hype cycles. Uh, I think the AI promise is very real. I think it needs to be matched up against the real world. So that means robotics and automation. Uh, And those things take a little bit more time. Like material science takes a little time. You don't just develop that overnight in a code release. And experimentation in targeted ways. And you have to sort of like figure out what works and what doesn't. The important thing is that I think Ronan and 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 I do not become uh, irrelevant um, or cannot I mean, uh, be. Uh, we need humans on the electronic trading. Yes, desk. we can. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, the truth is, we already have a, a bot that has taken over Ronan's. Well, but job. we've seen he this just in, know it yet. Yeah. in trading and investment management. We've been at the front end of this trend for decades. I mean, think about how yep. many people used to work in a custody shop in the '80s or the '90s, right? Think about how many analysts you needed to be able to cover the S and P 500 before time when you couldn't just pull up a quick summary on something. So we're, I think finance is way ahead on this stuff. And that actually means I think we'll be less affected than some other industries. Um, I think things like news reporting and the advertising supported media model, those things are really challenged. I think finance is largely fine. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that we, like in our business, can't get anything from AI. But like to, to your point, Dave, like I mean, we've, we've had a... We'll call it more a machine learning signal in operation on our exchange since 2014. And when, you know, we've asked the quants, what could we do with AI to make that signal better? And w- when you look at Wall Street, and particularly equities trading, we're at such a speed game in terms of microseconds where a lot of AI can, could probably do things to augment a model, except they're just nowhere near as quick. 
Right. So there's different uses of it, but like I, I agree with you. Wait, it sounds Even like you need a speed bump. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, we we need to make it a lot bigger, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> 350 microseconds almost caused world fucking war when we fought to be an exchange, but we, we might need we might need a few seconds to be honest. But no, but you're right, like things like um people have been looking at like elementalized uh, news feeds for like right. for years, like when economic information comes out. But to your point, using AI to really digest what's report that that could be something that's interesting. I, my count my my sort of contrary opinion on this is that i actually think ai is going to teach us not to trust stuff even more than we already don't trust stuff <laughs> yeah, we're going to learn that that's real true. hard in this election cycle it's ai but, spam yeah. but that puts a huge yeah. premium on what you guys are what i do right now which is authored content, content you know where it comes from, you know where the biases are, you know what the context is. I actually think we're going to see a golden age in people actually caring about where their information comes from. Look at that, the financial futurist, futurist. I keep saying futurist. <laughs> futurist. I'll be a futurist. The financial yeah. futurist, futurist is saying John Ramsey will have a job by oh, the end no, of 24. thank God. Thank God for Woo. that. Well, I mean, right. if we don't, we're all going to be unemployed, in which case we that, can get on the bread line yeah, together. That's well, true. That's, that's true. <laughs> Do you want to talk T plus one settlement, John? I guess. I don't know. It seems like that. Are you saying that's considering all, all the like cool elevated stuff, stuff you've been yeah, talking yeah, about? Yeah. It feels like right, yeah. a bit mundane and, and prosaic. Well, um, except everybody but, thinks it's going to end the world. You guys don't think well, it's going to end the world. I know, but it's no. not going to end the world, right? No. I mean, so uh, so uh, SEC has mandated uh, a mandated <laughs> a transition Fooderous. to <laughs> fooderous. We were not drinking. <laughs> we mandated fooderous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, holy shit. T plus one settlement. So that's upcoming, what, May, May. of 2024? May. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Um, so are people ready for that? Um, and uh, are, are there, so a lot of people have been making this discussion of kind of like the difference between the U.S. and Europe. The U.S. has gotten out in front of it and it's going to create all of these problems in terms of cross-border settlement, et cetera. How do you, how do you think about all that? I feel like we've been dealing with this problem since the 70s as well, right? And we just keep, we keep doing it over and over again. Um, the, I think the big message here is that advisors in particular, my audience, should not pay any attention to what will be an inevitable doom and gloom hype cycle in April, right? Mm-hmm. Unless something else is really interesting happening in April. April happens in this sort of gap in some of the election stuff. It's not Super Tuesday, et cetera, et cetera. So what are they going to write about? They're going to write about the impending T plus one transition and why that's going to create market disruptions, et cetera, et cetera. It's mm-hmm. just like Y2K to me where, <laughs> yeah, 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 I was going to say that. I remember that. It, it, but I'm already reading articles and getting calls from reporters that have that same tenor of like, really? tell me how to make this really a big deal. And I'm like, yeah, if it all goes horribly wrong, that would be a big deal. This is also like the most well understood transition in financial services history that I can think of. Everybody knows this. Everybody at the custodians I've talked to knows what's going on. Uh, yeah, there are going to be some differences in terms of who's holding water on trades. Absolutely. Does that mean some people lose a little money? Some people make a little money? Sure. But that happens every time we touch market structure in any yeah. way. So, but uh, see, that's the problem with talking to reporters, as you know um, now from having talked to them, is that if you don't feed them and give them enough, you know, kind of like ammunition as to why this is going to be earth ending, then, you know, why would they want to talk to you? Right? So, like, uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Well, then yeah. I guess I won't get any quotes because I've been yeah. telling everybody, I just <laughs> exactly. don't think it's that big a deal. Um, yeah. Look, it's not not a big deal. It is a a yeah. significant change to market structure in the settlement yeah. clearing process. But I think it's on the way towards, uh, you know, bare bond settlement, which is eventually where all of this goes. At least some markets become instantaneous settled like crypto. 
Yeah. But, you know, I we try to convince people that the world's not ending. It's never a good, never a good look. Mm, yeah. There's, uh, I'm not even smart ass now. There's no, there's no ETF crafted around this one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. No, I think, uh, I think yeah. you have to just like short BlackRock or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we say yeah. Wall Street's not betting. Mm. Anyway. All right. Well, we have a fun question for you. We have a fun question. Yeah. We used to ask a fun question and then people found it on fun. So now we, we have a different fun question. Uh, interested in your answer to this. If you could give a one sentence piece of, it can be longer than one sentence, but if you could give a one sentence piece of financial advice to your younger Dave, what would it be? Uh, a bit of a philosophical question. It is yeah, a bit of philosophical. It requires well, some introspection. So, uh, I, hopefully we asked you this question and we're not yeah, just blindsiding you. Just, no, no, no. I, th- yeah. I have thought about this. So I, you know, I have to think about my younger self who actually thought about money. And that was me probably in uh, like my early 20s. So yeah. uh, dating myself, you know, that would have been, you know, 90, something like that, 89. Uh, and I was an incredibly fearful investor at that point. I, I first, my first dollars into the market came in right before the crash in 87. That was real mm, fun. Well, that'll do it to you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it wasn't a lot of money. It was like a thousand bucks or something like that. Uh, and it simultaneously gave me an enormous appreciation for market structure because I went down that rabbit hole and like learned everything I could from the SEC report and all that. So I was deep in that well from 87 to 92. But as an investor, despite the fact that it launched my career, I invested with nothing but fear probably right up until 1998 when all of a sudden I decided to put a bunch of money to work and then I lost that instead. So I, I, I would tell myself not to invest from fear. I think that's always a mistake. Uh-huh. Well, there you go. Very, very wise. I probably should have invested wise. with fear because I lost my fucking shirt. But yeah. um, well, speaking of attire, watch this bridge. Dave, would you like yourself <laughs> a pair of IEX comfortable socks? I would Lovely love a pair socks. of socks. I would yeah. love a pair we of socks. We can send you other swag, swag too. But, swag. Uh, swag. Uh, honest to God, I'm a little worried that there's something wrong with John today. This is like his 10th mispronunciation. We should that call that a neurologist. I think it's wrong with me. Yeah, no, well, yeah. normally no. I pronounce shit wrong and he sits uh-huh. there, but like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. It, anyway, we give, we give out socks. I love them. Um, they're I beautiful socks. I'm actually wearing a pair of socks, but I. I'd I mean, I'm wearing a pair tried to show you. Yes, mm-hmm. that's true. But you're going to get the greatest pair of socks ever. <laughs> How many times can we say socks on a podcast? And we're not even talking about semiconductors. Who knows? <laughs> there you go. Boom. See, he, mm-hmm. Dave's bridging. God, he's very great. quick. Yeah. Yeah, rarely have <laughs> well, I can see the future, so it helps. He, he, he is a footerist, <laughs> after all. <laughs> he's a, he is a leading footerist. Yes. Well, Dave, listen, man, we, we appreciate you being on the podcast. You've been a fantastic guest. A fantastic guest. Maybe we'll call him back in. What if in 12 it. months, though, he's totally yeah. fucking wrong? Can we bring him back here uh, and show Oh, yeah, bring, bring him over the coals. Get another pair of socks. They should be wearing out by then. Sock, sock, well, I, mean, I do own more than one pair, but that's okay. <laughs> so maybe, uh, I, Dave, you will be our resident tutorist uh, for our uh, beginning first of year uh, podcast uh, going forward. I, I love it. I love the idea. Yeah. Bingo. Cheers, man. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> Fox and Lions over and out. God bless us, everyone. Bye now. Goodbye. <laughs>
Are you a diehard boxer or liner, or just a fair weather fan? No judgments, I know how annoying JR's Irish accent can be. Either way, we want to hear from you on our new Boxes and Lines listener survey to find out what you think about the show, give input on future episodes, guests, and more. We'll take it back to our survey counter thingy machine and consider all of your inputs as we plan our 2024 season. You can find the survey at iex.getfeedback.com slash boxes and lines. And don't worry, there's something in it for you. That's my drum roll. JR could probably do it better. You get a pair of socks. That's right. Take the survey. We'll send you a pair of our coveted box and line socks while supplies last in a new limited edition print. How's that for listener appreciation? So take the survey. Tell us what you think. And thanks for listening. Again, that's iex.getfeedback.com slash boxes and lines over and out. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Daisy Clace. With support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. <laughs>